Well, good evening, congregation. It's a joy for me to be with you again this evening and lead you in worship, bring God's Word to you. And if you're visiting with us online, then a a warm welcome uh, to you. Uh, We're sad that we can't see you face-to-face, but we're thankful for uh, technology and that you can still join in. And if you're visiting, uh, then a welcome to you as well. As we come into God's presence Let's hear this call to worship from the letter of Peter. We'll be looking at Peter in our sermon today. And we read this. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God. Who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. I would ask that you stand. We confess together, congregation, in whom is your help? Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heavens and earth. The Lord greets us this evening with these words. To those who are elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. As we come into God's presence to praise Him and and worship and honor Him, let's lift our voices together with hymn number 238, hymn number 238.
Tonight we're going to read together Psalm number 42. You can turn there in your Bible, Psalm number 42. A little bit of a shorter psalm. It's um, the first one in the second book of the Psalter. You might know uh, the Psalter is broken up into five different books. And Psalm 41, of course, concludes book one. And then Psalm 42 opens up book two. And uh, Psalm 42 and 43 are commonly seen as being uh, a unit, a single unit. Um, and it's about somebody who is probably in exile, at least they're far away from God, far away from the temple, far away from uh, the other believers. It's definitely an exile-like setting. Um, And you can read Psalm 43 later, uh, but just know those two are connected. So let's, let's read that together. Psalm 42. The title there is, To the Choir Master, a Maskell of the Sons of Korah. Then we read this. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How would I go with a throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you, from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep, At the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Just a couple of brief comments on this psalm. Part of the irony of it is that the psalmist pictures himself as a deer who's in the wilderness and doesn't have any water. It's getting thirsty. This isn't You know, a camel that can survive in the desert for a long time without water. This is a deer that needs water, but there's no water. And the irony is that rather than having that Psalm 23-esque experience where the good shepherd leads him beside streams of flowing water and refreshes his soul, this person in this psalm here is far away from that kind of an experience. And rather than having those refreshing streams of water that he needs for life, the irony is his tears are all that he gets to drink. And rather than having those beautiful, refreshing streams that would revive his soul, he is, as it were, being crushed by the roar of these waterfalls that are coming down on him and crushing him. And his enemies are all around him and 
You know, you're out in the wilderness. Where's your God? Your God's not here. You don't have a God. God doesn't exist. You're crazy. And sometimes I think we can find ourselves in those similar kinds of experiences. I don't know if you're going through something like that, maybe now, and perhaps it feels as though whatever it is in your life, perhaps it's illness or, or even just the, own, the, the dryness of your own soul. Perhaps you feel far from God. You feel like God doesn't hear you. He doesn't know that you're, you're there. You're going through this. The psalmist, even in his trouble and his, his trial, he cries out and he says, he says, I know, I know that God is my salvation. He is my God. He says, I know I'm going to praise him again. That's an encouragement for you and I as we go through those, those deep waters that we need to remind, remind ourselves, remember the steadfast love of the Lord. It is faithful. God will visit us again with his mercy and with his grace. And if we think about Christ, he was the one who could truly cry out, my God, my God, why have you forgotten me? Why have you forsaken me? When he was on that cross, the father did forsake him for that brief moment as he bore your sins and my sins. But as Psalm 16 also reminds us, the psalmist there says that God would not leave his Holy One to see corruption. Even though Christ was momentarily forgotten there, forsaken by God, God was faithful to him and raised him from the dead so that when you and I also go through trials and difficulties, we can look to Christ. We can know he identifies with us and we can have that confidence and that assurance that through Christ, we will praise God. God will come to us, visit us with his salvation. He is our God, and we can take comfort in him. Let's sing this psalm now together. Psalm 42. It's going to be number 42C in the Trinity Psalter hymnal. 42C.
Let's go to God now in a time of congregational prayer. And as we do so, we'll be uh, remembering um, Reverend Caleb Jansen, who is serving in Gig Harbor. So there's a couple of items there laid out in our bulletin, and we'll remember that work there. So let's uh, bow before God in prayer. Almighty Lord and awesome and holy God, we come into your courts this evening with humility, but also with praise on our lips. Lord, even as we think back on this morning's message, we, we praise you that even though so often we are unlovable, yet you have poured out your rich love upon us through your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would help us throughout this week to remember this message and to live this out, that we would also then love those who are around us, that we would love unconditionally, learning from you and from the pattern that Christ himself has given to us. And Lord, we pray that as we also come into your courts, that we would remember you, remember that you are the God of our salvation and that we can hope in you. And Lord, sometimes our soul does feel as though it is cast down within us. Sometimes it feels as though we're in this great turmoil, whether it's mental anguish that we're suffering, spiritual anguish, or, or sometimes physical uh, frailty of the body, things that, that attack our, our physical being. Lord, we pray that you would help us always in these moments to turn to you. Lord, that even when we are feeling dry, that we sometimes are feeling far from you, that you would, through the work of your Holy Spirit and by your word, turn us back to yourself. Give us greater confidence in your word and in what you've done for us through Christ and through his suffering and death on the cross and that we would be able to remember that we have a great high priest in heaven who sympathizes with us, who knows our weakness and our frailty because he himself has borne our griefs and our sorrows. Lord, give us greater confidence and assurance. And Lord, teach us also what it is to to long for you. Sometimes we have to admit that we just don't. We can become so, so enamored by the pleasures of this world. We can forget you in, in the ease that we have here in this life. Lord, turn us back to yourself. Teach us, Lord, that, that we would also pant after you, that our soul would long for you, thirst for you, the living God, that we, we would desire and hunger to come before you and to appear before you, to dwell in your presence forever. And Lord, we pray that you would satisfy us with this longing. We ask, Lord, that for those who are among us who are going through those deep waters, that you would show them your steadfast love, that you would comfort them, strengthen them, uphold them. We know that there are those among us who have had uh, surgeries recently and others who are um, needing surgeries coming up. We know that there are those among us who live day by day with um, pains and difficulties and, and big questions of health or maybe job security and financial security. And Lord, through all of these different trials and troubles, we pray that you would be our rock. Comfort us and visit us, Lord, in your mercy and your strength. Father, we pray for 
the ministries of this church. And even as we look forward to this coming weekend and uh, we have a morning to be able to gather together with, with some of us and learn more about evangelism, we pray that this seminar, this time together would be fruitful. It would, it would be a blessing to those who are able to make it out. And Lord, that as a broader church body, you would help us each day, each week, each month, each year to be more faithful in sharing the gospel with those around us, both in word and in deed. Lord, that especially you would prick us with a a compassion and that same kind of love that loves the broken, the hurting, the downtrodden, those who so often are unlovable, but that we would desire to bring to them, to show to them the great love that you have shown to us. Father, we pray for the, the elders and the deacons who serve here and also for our pastor. Lord, that you would work in their hearts and use them, Lord, here to to grow and equip us as a body of believers to be able to better serve you and live for your glory. We pray that you would protect them from, from dangers and from the wiles of the devil. And Lord, we pray for all of our different classes that happen, the adult Sunday school, the kids Sunday school and catechism classes, the Bible studies that happen from week to week. We ask, Lord, for your your blessing and for your spirit in those different works as well, that you would use those things. Um, Lord, not, not the efforts that we put forth, but that as we seek and long uh, to hear from you, to, to grow um, by your grace, Lord, that you would help us in these things by your spirit. We think tonight of Pastor Caleb Jansen, who's serving in Gig Harbor. We ask, Lord, for your continued strength and grace uh, in his ministry that you would use him, Lord, for the advancement of your kingdom. And Lord, we're thankful for uh, the different families that are coming to the church there and who are seeking to join and become uh, formal members. We pray, Lord, for your blessing on them, whoever these individuals and families are. Lord, that uh, you would continue to build them up in the faith and that as they become members of this church, that they would be able to serve there and be served and blessed by this church. And Lord, we pray also for those who are regularly attending there, that you would put it in their hearts uh, to desire membership in this church as well, that they would desire to commit to this body of believers, that they can also then serve you uh, faithfully in this capacity and partake fully of of, um, being part of a local church. We ask also, Lord, that in your mercy you would provide for the church in Gig Harbor a qualified and a willing deacon to serve there. And Lord, that you would provide somebody who is not just business savvy, who's not just good with finances, but especially, Lord, that you would provide somebody who is filled with the Spirit, who loves your word, who loves the teaching of Scripture and of the gospel, and that you would provide somebody who would a desire to serve as the hands and the feet of Christ in this community. And Lord, we lay all of these things before your throne. We commit ourselves to you. Father, we, we are sinful people. We turn away from you. We rebel against you so often. And we pray that you would forgive us of all of our sins, the sins that we've committed this day and this past week. And Lord, we, as we pray to you, we ask that you would hear us in all of these things, not because of who we are or what we've done, but simply because of your Son, Jesus Christ, and 
how we have our identity in him and that you will hear us because of him. And so, Lord, we ask all of these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Well, I'd ask that you stand again and we'll sing together number 500 and, uh, sorry, no, 546. God of the Prophets, number 546, and we'll stand to sing. You can keep your Trinity hymnal handy there. We'll be looking at uh, just a couple of articles in the Belgic Confession. But otherwise, I ask that you take up your Bible and turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, between Hebrews and Revelation. And we're going to be reading together just two short verses there. And then uh, throughout the sermon, we'll be taking into account uh, some of the context and a couple of other passages from the Old Testament as well. So 1 Peter 1, 
or sorry, 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10, and then we'll be going to the Belgic Confession, Article 2 and 3. God's Word says there in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And then Belgic Confession, Article 2 there. And I'll put it in the form of a question, and then you can respond with the answer. And with Article 2, we're just going to catch that last little paragraph. Article 2 talks about the means by which God has made himself known. And in the first place, you can see there, God has made himself known through creation, as Paul says in Romans 1, that everyone is without excuse. And then that last little paragraph in Belgic Confession, Article 2, the question, what is the means by which we know God? And we can respond together. Second, he makes himself known to us more openly by his holy and divine word, as much as we need in this life for his glory and for the salvation of his own. And then Article 3, I'll put this in a question as well. What do we confess about the written Word of God? And we respond together. We confess that this Word of God was not sent nor delivered by the will of men, but that holy men of God spoke, being moved by the Holy Spirit, as Peter says, Afterwards, our God, because of the special care he has for us and our salvation, commanded his servants, the prophets and apostles, to commit this revealed word to writing. He himself wrote with his own finger the two tables of the law. Therefore, we call such writings holy and divine scriptures." Now, it might not be immediately clear why we read those, but primarily just to set our minds aright that not, we're not looking specifically at how that's connected to what Peter says in particular, but more how he's saying what he's saying. What, we want to see what Peter is doing. And we want to keep in mind that God for us and for our salvation, because of his special care, has given us the scriptures. And that's part of what we want to look at tonight and part of what Peter is doing. Otherwise, I encourage you to keep a Bible uh, open in front of you if you're able. I know sometimes kids need a little extra attention, and sometimes our hands and our eyes are a little too frail to do so, or sometimes we just listen better. Um, but if you're able, I do encourage you to keep a Bible handy. In the very first verse of this epistle here, 1 Peter 1 verse 1, Peter says that he's writing to the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He's writing to elect exiles, Christians who are spread throughout the Roman Empire, 
And he's writing to a people then who had been changed by their faith in Christ. This meant, of course, that they were seeking to live a different life. They had been given a new identity in their Lord. And that's why, in part, they were exiles. They didn't participate in the religious rites and the rituals that absolutely permeated the Roman culture. And so these Christians, they often faced displeasure. They were subjected often to persecution and suffering. They lived in a hostile world. For them to live out their faith could mean public shame. Some people viewed them as, get this, haters of mankind simply because they wouldn't partake in the debauchery within the culture. Things like excessive drinking and entertainment, the fluid sexuality and the partying. And so they would be rejected by men. They could be ostracized and marginalized, no doubt, when they, and, and no doubt when they heard those words from Peter to the elect exiles, they probably thought, ah, yeah, that's us. Within their culture, there was a certain degree of religious plurality. There were many gods that could and should be worshipped in the Roman world, not least the emperor himself. But what was not allowed was worship of an exclusive Lord, one God, who claimed an exclusive way of salvation. Well, maybe you're already sympathizing a bit with Peter's audience. We haven't faced severe persecution here in North America, but many of our brothers and sisters around the world do. But sometimes, perhaps, we feel like outsiders when we don't take part in the fleshly passions that our neighbors are taking part in. Our friends maybe say, come on, don't be so ordinary. Come, have a good time with us. If not, we'll shame you for things like, really, you're still a virgin? Wow, you've only been with, with one person? You've never really experienced a hangover? What's wrong with you? Come on, have a good time. We can be called bigots for being religiously narrow. Haters of mankind is what our culture might sometimes call us, simply for not affirming somebody's lifestyle or beliefs. Well, Rome, again, was the center of the universe, as it were, in that day. And if you were a Roman, you were supposed to feel as though you had arrived. You were in the best culture ever. This was the pinnacle of world history, the most advanced and sophisticated society that there was. No rivals. Sound familiar? Now, we in North America as Christians might not think that our society is, is the greatest. Maybe we do. But our society, our world, our culture can often turn to us and say that we're on the wrong side of history. They want to cancel Christians. We might be rejected by the world. We might be viewed as less than special. But in face of all of this, Peter turns to his audience and he says, your identity is in Christ. Your identity is in Christ. You are his people. You are the new Israel of God in fulfillment of everything that God said in the Old Testament. You're his special people. And God chose you and now also commissions you to declare his glory as those who are a changed people having been given mercy in Christ. You're the new Israel, chosen, 
special in the eyes of God to proclaim his glory. Not because we deserve it, not because we deserve God's mercy. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve to be God's people. We deserved, we, we deserve actually to be canceled and rejected by God. But because of Christ and what he did on the cross for us and his intercession for us, we as Christians are the chosen people of God. And so look with me there. First, we're going to take into account a little bit of the context of our text. Our text, again, is 1 Peter 2, verses just 9 and 10. But let's look a little bit briefly at the broader context. In verse 4 there, we read, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Jesus Christ himself, Peter says, is the living stone rejected by men, and yet to God, precious and chosen. Peter's contrasting two different architects here, the the world and false religion and God. They're both building their own things. And in verse 7 there we read, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The false builders, they have looked at Jesus and they have considered him unsuitable for their blueprint, unfit for what their schemes and desires are. Now you see, in the ancient world, if you're going to build a building, and if we have an architect here, he'll tell us the same. If you're going to build a building, you need a good foundation. You've got to start with a good foundation. And the ancients, they would choose and select a large and a precious stone that would be set as the cornerstone of the building. And that cornerstone was very important. It would give shape and the engineered worth of the structure. It would give support and stability. The building has no worth apart from the cornerstone. And I think we can easily understand that. A a building today as well, if it doesn't have a good foundation, has little worth. The world looks at Jesus, looks at the shame of the cross, looks at his humility, and they reject him. He's supposed to be the Savior? His hands were supposed to take up the sword and bring deliverance, and instead they're nailed to a cross? He humbled himself to the point of death, death on a cross? He's supposed to be powerful. He's not supposed to stoop and wash other people's feet. But it's one thing to have a Messiah who does that. It's an entirely another level then to call us to do the same. You and me, that we also would be called to humble ourselves and to follow in his example for the world, that is unacceptable. And so they reject Christ. But God, the master mason, the chief architect, He chose Jesus as the precious and the costly living stone for his, Peter says, eternal and spiritual household, rejected by the world, but chosen by God to build his spiritual house. Jesus, who was foreknown before the foundation of the world itself, he humbled himself to to death as that spotless lamb, and God raised him again from the dead, gave him glory and honor, and by virtue of his resurrection, he is the living stone, chosen and precious. 
that stone without which there simply is no foundation and no house of God. We can see verse 5 then. Peter says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The implication, of course, is that just as Christ is the living stone, rejected by the world, but chosen by God, so you and I also, as Christians, may be rejected by the world, but also chosen in Christ. And God is building his spiritual house with his people. A beautiful, beautiful image. Peter then, in in verse 9, we find in our text here, we find these Four epithets in the first little portion there. Peter says, in contrast to these false builders, to those who reject Christ and the church, but to those who then ultimately will be rejected by God, in contrast to that, Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. These are four epithets. What's an epithet? You can think of somebody like King Richard. He was given that praiseworthy name, the Lion-Hearted. That's an epithet. It's a, a name, a title, a description. And these four things here, Peter says about these Christians, that they are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for God's own possession. But now, Peter is not just crafting this out of his own mind. All of these things, and indeed our whole text tonight, is drawn, pulled from the Old Testament. It's kind of like a tent in some ways. You have this tightly compact bag with all these pieces inside. And in that, sometimes we wonder how in the world can you fit so much in such a tight, compacted bag. And we want to take time tonight to see if we can just pull some of these pieces out, looking at the Old Testament, and see how this tent, as it were, takes shape. And so if you have a Bible, I ask that you turn to Exodus 19 first. There's three passages in the Old Testament in particular that we want to look at. Exodus 19, Isaiah 42, and Hosea 1 and 2. So Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. Maybe you'll remember God has in Exodus 19, he has just redeemed Israel from Egypt. He's taken them from the darkness and the slavery in Egypt, and he has brought them to himself at Mount Sinai. Moses then goes up and meets with God, and God says to him, notice verse 4 there, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. A.K.A., you've seen the excellencies of God's salvific work, that making a way through the Red Sea, snuffing out Pharaoh's armies like little candles doused in water. Remembering salvation from Egypt in Scripture becomes a picture of salvation from sin. Verse 5, look there what it says. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you can see just a hint there of the first and the fourth epithet that Peter mentions, but we're going to leave those aside just for now. 
Then verse 6, you shall be to me, here it is, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The wording there is, is just slightly different in the English, but Peter's drawing from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Now, we might ask, what does it mean to be a royal priesthood or a holy nation? Well, priests serve a deity. They serve a god. They represent that deity also in the world. And God, who is the great divine king in the middle of Israel, is saying, I've redeemed you, and now you are able to come into my presence as my priests, and you can serve me with your life. And that means also then being holy. That means to be set apart, to be different, to live a life that is devoted to God and to God alone. God, as the King and the Savior of Israel, called these people in everything they did to reflect that. Israel was to be devoted to God in every way, to serve Him with all they had, and to so then also represent God in the world around them. Now the problem quickly arises as we read through the story of the Old Testament, because rather than being devoted to God and serving Him, almost right out of the gate, we see that Israel fails, and they turn to other gods. They jeopardize their special status. And God, if you know the story of the Old Testament, eventually judges Israel for her systemic and chronic rebellion. And actually, instead of being a kingdom of priests, they rebel against God, and so God then chooses just the Levites to serve Him. Well, now jump ahead to Isaiah 43. We saw there the middle two epithets, a royal priesthood serving a a king, representing him in the world, being a holy nation, being devoted to God. Isaiah 43, and specifically verses 20 and 21. We want to notice here also that Isaiah is picking up the same rebellion of Israel. And if you look, if you were to look there at verse 27 of Isaiah 43, the prophet says, Your first father sinned, and your mediators transgressed against me. Israel, you see, did not offer to God the sacrifices um, that a, a royal and a holy people were called to offer. In verse 24, they've instead burdened God with their sins, and they've wearied him with their iniquities. And Isaiah is warning them that the once royal priests who served in God's presence will be banished in exile. That the people set apart for God are going to be set far away in the exile of God's judgment. The prophet is warning Israel of this. But what we want to also notice is if we back up to verse 16, the prophet also promises hope and restoration. Try to imagine if you're Peter's audience, you're maybe Jews who have been now fathered into the faith, faith in Christ, or you're Gentiles who are maybe completely unfamiliar with the Old Testament. But perhaps if you were to read through this, you look there at at Isaiah 43, verse 16, and it says, thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters. And you say, hey, 
That sounds familiar. Verse 17. Who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down. They cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. That's, of course, referring to Pharaoh, to his hosts, whom God destroyed in the Red Sea. It's clear Exodus language. And then you read verse 18 and 19. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? The prophet Isaiah here is pointing forward to a day, to the gospel age, when God would bring about a new exodus. He would redeem a people, not just from physical slavery in Egypt, but a redemption from sin. He's pointing us forward to the gospel age. And then we know closer to the end of verse 20, this is the specific language that Peter is picking up. For I give, I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people. And then verse 21, the people whom I formed for myself. People whom I formed for myself. The prophet, or Peter there, is picking up that language again, and he is using that, that first epithet and that fourth epithet. A chosen people, that's direct Old Testament language, a people for God's own special treasured possession, hearkening back again to Exodus 19. Now, I know this might be a little dangerous saying this in the Midwest, uh, but I'm a big fan of real football, not American football. Uh, soccer, that is. And uh, one of the greatest players in the world is Lionel Messi. Now, there's been a long-standing debate, is he actually the best player? He's won just about every trophy that's possible to win in the soccer world, and many of those trophies he's won multiple times. But, you know, the haters will say, how could Messi be the best when he's never even won a World Cup? And if you were to listen to Messi talk over the last years, he's getting closer to the end of his career, and he probably would have traded half the trophies in his collection to gain that one prized special trophy, that World Cup. And if you know, if you don't know, I'll spoil it. He and Argentina finally won that cup. He finally achieved that special possession. You can imagine how precious that would be to him. You know, we all have our own things that are precious and dear to ourselves. Precious treasures. It could be a hat. It could be, you know, a, a, a bat with a signature on it from, um, you know, a, a professional player like Ernie Banks or Sammy Soda that we admire or, you know, maybe an heirloom or jewelry. But that pales in comparison to how God looks at his people and says, you are my precious possession, my treasured possession. And it is because of the finished work of Christ, because the precious blood of God's own son was shed for his people. And then God then looks at these people and he says, you are mine and you are precious. What a beautiful picture. Well, Peter's weaving together all these Old Testament things and he's saying to these Christians, you are now the new people of God, the new Israel. God's chosen you as his special inheritance even as he first chose Christ. 
God, of course, sent Christ to the cross to die for you, to me, to bear our sins, to right our wrongs, to make you and I worthy in the eyes of God. While the world may want to set Christ and Christians aside to reject them from society, sometimes even, God, the master builder, has set Christians apart for salvation. And then he has also called them to bear witness to him and his salvation in the world. And this leads us to the purpose. You can stay in Isaiah uh, 43, but let me read the end of verse 9 of our text. The purpose is that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. By excellencies, Peter there is simply referring to what we've already alluded to, that is the great acts of God's salvation. God redeeming a people through his marvelous acts of salvation. And again, Peter's drawing from Isaiah 43, the end of verse 21, which we didn't catch yet, says that they may declare my praise. And again, in our English, it maybe doesn't come across as clear, but Peter is drawing on the Greek translation of the Old Testament to say what he's saying in his epistle there. Now, as the church has confessed for centuries, God created us for his glory and to proclaim his glory. And we can notice just very briefly in verse 4 of Isaiah 43, God says through the prophet there, you're precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. Verse 5, in the new Exodus, the gospel is going to bring people from every dial of the company, compass. Verse 7, we read, who is called by my name, everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And then we can Harken back to the previous chapter, 42 verse 16 there says, I will turn the darkness before them into light. What's Peter doing in the New Testament? He's saying, these Gentile Christians who were once in darkness have now been transferred into the kingdom of God's marvelous light. Transferred from sin and bondage to Satan through Christ now into the marvelous light of the salvation of Christ. And our question then here is, how are these Christians to proclaim that great act of God, that wonderful salvation? How do Christians, transferred from Satan's kingdom into God's kingdom of light, how do Christians proclaim the marvelous acts of salvation? Perhaps Peter's hearkening you know, back to years before when he was sitting at Jesus' feet and he heard him say from Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. Let your light then shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And what Peter does in a lot of his epistle is he then moves on to talk about how servants are to obey their masters, how husbands and wives are to live together. All of these things that are talking about holy living. In verse 11 and 12 of 1 Peter 2, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter's emphasis then 
is be holy for God himself is holy. Live holy lives before the world. Now, when I was a new Christian, you know, all fired up and gung-ho, maybe a little too trigger happy, I want to tell somebody about Jesus. I very quickly bumped into other Christians who would say things akin to, I don't need to tell other people about Jesus. They can see by my life. I don't need to evangelize. Other people can see Jesus through me. It really put me off. It's a cop-out. And if you have that mentality, if that's how you live, let me challenge you. We are called in Scripture to verbally tell others when we can and in the ways that we can about Christ. But my own aversion to that kind of attitude as a young believer doesn't mean that it's not a thing. And what Peter shows over and again is that we are called to live holy lives before the watching world, and that is a way of proclaiming, preaching the gospel of Christ. And so Peter, he'll go on to talk about how as Christians we're to submit ourselves peacefully to the government as far as they do not command us to do things contrary to God's word. Peter calls the Christians to live faithful and diligent lives in their workplaces. That if they are reviled for being Christians, they're not to be nasty in retaliation. That husbands are to honor and love their wives. That children are to honor their parents. That women are to also honor and submit to their husbands. And ladies, to give more attention to the beauty of your character and virtue than to outward physical beauty. Putting on Christ-likeness in our actions is the way that we proclaim Christ to the world around us. Now we move on. What is the basis again for this? And we get to the last verse of our text, 1 Peter 2, verse 10, and it reads there, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I ask that if you're able, you turn to Hosea 1 and 2 for our last Old Testament passage. And again, we read the confession to just remind us of of how it is that God has given us all of Scripture. And all of Scripture points us to the gospel as a whole. And what Peter is doing is he's going through the Old Testament and he's weaving these things together to show to the New Testament church how they are the fulfillment of what God has promised long ago. And in Hosea, Hosea, you'll find that shortly after Ezekiel, he was a contemporary, uh, Hosea was, of Isaiah the prophet. And God called him, imagine this, God called him to go and marry a prostitute and have children with her. Now, one of those, so... And, and God says to him, go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. You see that same thread. Israel is forgetting God, turning from God. It's a rather shocking illustration. And so Hosea marries Gomer, has children, and one of those children is called Loruma, which means no mercy. And you can see in chapter 1, verse 6, God says, I will no longer have mercy on Israel. I will not forgive their sins. 
Another child is called Loami, which means not my people. For God says in 1 verse 9, you are not my people and I am not your God. Let that sink in. The chant of Old Testament redemption is God's promise that I will be your God and you will be my people. And Israel's sin here, their idolatry, has brought God's judgment and he disowns them because they have first turned away from him. Maybe maybe some of us know that awful and heart-wrenching sadness of estrangement between parent and child. Israel is no longer God's holy people or a royal priesthood because they've acted as the nations and broken covenant. And God no longer has a people, a special possession. And beloved, this is just simply a picture of, of our own hearts. In our own state, you and I, we are rebels against God. We are not God's people in our sinful natural state. We do not deserve God's mercy. But the beautiful thing in Hosea that we read already here in the Old Testament is that wonderful word of reversal, that God would again show favor. And at the end of the book, it says, I will heal their apostasy. Apostasy, sorry. How could God love a rebellious and adulterous people? Only because he's merciful. He says, I will love them freely. And Hosea 1 verse 10 here looks forward to a day when God would show his abundant mercy through the Messiah. And a people who were not a people would again be called children of the living God. And then just briefly, Hosea 2 verse 20 and 23, you can, you can look there. To sinners who were predisposed to spiritual prostitution, God promises through the prophet. He says this, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. What a beautiful, beautiful reversal. And what's absolutely remarkable is Peter is reading this and he is taking this and saying to the New Testament church, you are this changed people, once lost, living in sinful passions and the foolish ignorance inherited from your sinful forefathers, indulging your fleshly desires, however you wanted, whether excessive alcohol use, orgies, partying, idolatry. You once were in the kingdom of darkness and in death. You did not deserve mercy. But what Peter's saying here is God has said, I will love you freely. Hosea is fulfilled. God again has a special people. Jews and Gentiles coming together before the cross of Christ. What a beautiful, beautiful reversal. A changed people. God's people, the new Israel, those who have been given mercy, forgiveness of their sins. How can this be? How can this be that a people who did not deserve mercy would be given mercy? It was because Jesus was counted in your place and in my place as a sinner. That he was crushed for our sins, but that he now also, at God's right hand, 
makes intercession for us and says their sins are completely wiped away. I've paid for them completely. And God then turns to us and he offers us mercy and peace through the blood of Christ on the cross. By his wounds, we have been healed. Through Christ, you and I are able to die to sin and live to to righteousness. Well, if we return to where we began, as Christians, we can sometimes feel as though we're on the wrong side of history. We can sometimes believe those taunts like we even read in Psalm 42. Where's your God? Really? You Christians are outdated. Why do you follow those things? Why do you believe in God and read the Bible? What a waste of time. Won't culture or maybe gender fluidity presses us to conform. But in fact, you and I could not be more on the right side of history. God's history. God has written the history of this world with Jesus Christ at the center. And that from the foundation of the world, before God created the world, he proclaimed that Christ would bring redemption and that you and I would be elect, chosen in him through faith. And again, the reason for bringing out the confession this evening is just to set our minds to remind ourselves that all of Scripture proclaims this message of the gospel, that it's all woven together as an intricate story. And we are then brought into that through the mercy of God, that even though in our sins we were not a people, we were dead, we were not God's people, we did not deserve his mercy. Through Christ, we've been made his. And then as, as a side note, one of the things that I, I pray is um, on our minds, maybe as we work through this, is that we need to work hard to study scripture. Peter, in these short little verses, is packing so much in there. And when we read these quotes from the Old Testament, I encourage you, don't just jump over them quickly, but go back and and look at them. These New Testament authors are not just simply cherry-picking these random verses from the Old Testament. They are so often opening up this broader context. And I, I just encourage you, and this is an encouragement and challenge for me as well, that we need to work hard to study our Bibles, to read diligently, and to to go deeper into what God has to say to us. And just simply as we close, you and I might sometimes find ourselves rejected by the world. We might sometimes feel as though we're exiles. But we need to remind ourselves that God says through his word, you are chosen in Christ. You're precious in my sight. Why? Because you're bought with the very precious blood of Jesus Christ who died on the cross. Jesus then, who is that living stone, that cornerstone, sets the foundation for the whole building. And you and I, as his people, are being built into the spiritual house of God. We need to take courage and remember those beautiful truths. We are so easily given to the sinful passions and lusts of our flesh. We're by nature enemies of God, but God has come to us in Christ, and he offers us that unfading crown of glory that one day we will be with God in glory forever. And the challenge for us today is to proclaim that gospel through our lives, living holy lives before the watching world.
May God help us in these things. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God Almighty, as we've worked hard this evening to uh, dig into your word and to study the things that you would have to say to us, we pray that you would help us um, in these things to understand more and more the gospel, the beautiful gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. Encourage us, Lord, as your people. Help us to live more faithfully to you and help us to live out our faith before a watching world. We pray that you would aid us in these things by your Holy Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing. We're going to sing hymn number 542. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. And that last stanza that points us to that that eternal hope that we have, that we will one day dwell with God forever, that we are that spiritual house for all of eternity. Hymn number 542, we'll stand to sing. Let's pray for God's blessing on our offering tonight. Lord God, as we um, 
bring forth our gifts and our offerings, Lord. We acknowledge that these are things that you yourself have first given to us. Help us, Lord, to give freely and um, with hearts of gratitude uh, to you for, for who you are and what you've done, uh, the identity that you have given us in Christ. And Lord, we pray uh, for your uh, blessing on the Pregnancy Aid South Suburbs ministry, Lord, that um, you would uh, strengthen those who, who give uh, crisis counseling of various types um, and those who are laboring hard to preserve the, the, the sanctity of life. Lord, we live in a, a society, a, a cultural world that has such a low view of life and um, so many little lives are, are snuffed out. Lord, would you have mercy on us? And we pray then, Lord, for your blessing on, on this work. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. We'll stand together and we'll confess our uh, faith together using the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed on page 852 in the Trinity Psalter Hymnal. We confess there together. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. 
and I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Well, as we go into this week here, uh, these words from the end of Peter's first letter. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Amen.